This is the Sports and Entertainment Podcast, your B2B show for the best thought leadership in the industry, bringing you education, information, and inspiration only on market scale. It's not as traditional or pigeonholed as you might have seen. You're seeing a real diversification across genres and across platforms. Building your brand is not around your product, so your team and your players, but you build your brand around truly this experience and this community and the team on a greater scale. You know, the team of the past 30 years. We aren't in the baseball business. We are in the entertainment business, the experience business, and most importantly, the people business. The game's about to start. Let's make some noise. All right, welcome to this episode of the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Kern. Thank you so much for joining me for this week's episode of the show. Got a lot of great stuff coming up on this episode. Can't wait to get it all in, get it into your uh, listening ears. Thank you again for listening to this episode of the podcast. We do very much appreciate it. We're going to start things off with a roundtable discussion between myself, our director of analytics here at MarketScale, TC Riley, and then our VP of business development, Tim Maitland. We're going to discuss bowl season. Aren't there too many bowls? Is it oversaturated? Are people actually getting their money's worth when they... Uh, pay for a sponsorship for one of these bowl games. We're going to get into a little bit of the college football discussion there. Then I'm going to have on, uh, for his second appearance on the podcast, Skylar Richards, the Director of Sports Science at FC Dallas. He's going to come on for the first of a three-part series where we discuss the state of tech in sports science. So how did we get to where we are? What's the history there? Where are we now and what's coming down the pipeline when we look at technology in sports science? We're going to focus in on that for the first of a three-part series with Skylar on the podcast. I think he's really insightful, really, really smart guy when it comes to this avenue of sports science. So I'm really, really excited to get to do this with him. And then finally, we're going to wrap things up today with a bit of a tease because I started to record an episode, a uh, an interview for the podcast uh, a little bit yesterday, and it's with a guy named Aaron Patton. You might not know that name necessarily right off the bat, but he was the global director for the Jordan brand uh, when Nike initially launched, when Nike, when Nike initially when Nike initially launched Jordan back in the 90s. And so we started talking, and we were going to talk about what he's doing nowadays, which is uh, which is a wearable tech uh, platform uh, for youth sports called Amplified Sports. And so we were going to talk about that, but we spent so much time talking about Michael Jordan and getting to hang out with Michael in the 90s and, and building that brand and what all went into that that it turned into a 40-minute conversation and it totally went way past the boundaries of uh, the 15-minute interview that we typically use for features on this show. And so I thought, you know what? This is a perfect opportunity. We're going to release this as a bonus episode. So you're going to get a little bit of a teaser at the end of this episode for what you can expect coming out December 27th. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or on Spotify or wherever you get podcasts. Make sure you subscribe so you can get that bonus episode when it comes out December 27th. Again, that's going to be Aaron Patton. It's a really fascinating conversation. Just a behind-the-scenes look at how he helped create that Jordan brand that's become so iconic, one of the biggest and most recognizable brands in all of sports and uh, and fashion these days, to be honest. So uh, it's going to be really, really fascinating, really fun look and conversation to what he's doing now and how he helped create that brand back in the 90s. So awesome conversation. Look for that entire conversation to come out after Christmas. Uh, but uh, for today, going to get a little bit of a teaser at the end of this episode. So make sure you keep an eye out for that. All right. I'm going to welcome into the studio now TC and Tim. We're going to have that conversation about college bowl games. So stick around. That is coming up next on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. 
I've got two special guests in the studio. I've got T.C. Thomas Riley. I guess it's Thomas T.C. Riley, really. Yeah, either way. Either way. Tomato, tomato. Either way. Two of my colleagues here at Market Scale, And then Tim Maitland as well. Tim making his uh, debut on the podcast. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today, guys. We're going to talk a little bit about NCAA Bowls. We have a lot of bowl games going on right now. Many of them, uh, I don't know, I haven't been paying attention to necessarily. But... Um, we're going to talk a little bit about bowl season because that's kind of what we're in the throes of right now of the sports calendar. Um, let's start off just by asking, uh, how do you guys feel about bowl season just in general? General thoughts, general impressions towards the entire um, towards the entire season. No, I love it. You know, I'm an avid sports fan, um, and you know, college football is probably my favorite sport to follow. So, you know, I have the mindset, you know, the more the merrier. So, any bowl game that you can put in front of me. Even if it's a six and six, you know, team in the Cheez It Bowl, you know, I'm game. I, I love the game. I like seeing the smiles on the kids' faces a lot of times. It's the last time they were going to play football. So, yeah, bring it on. The more, the merrier. Tim's very touchy feely about, you know, feeling <laughs> good about the warm fuzzies about players. <laughs> hey, it's Christmas time. Yeah, it's a good point. If you're not warm and fuzzy now, you never will be. It's a good point. You know, I, I can generally convince myself anytime I put on a game, whether or not I care a lick about it as soon as I flip it on, by the time I'm done watching it, I can, you know, be up off the couch, like rooting for a specific team. I can convince myself to care that much. TC, do you feel that same way? Yeah, no, absolutely. You can uh, you make a rooting interest. You you find the weirdest things. The oh well, that coach used to be an assistant at with this other coach that I know. You find some <laughs> thread to give you a reason to root. Um, sports are always more fun when you have a, a horse in the race. So um, yeah, and it is a great time of year. Uh, the bowl games, the NFL season wrapping up, uh, fantasy playoffs wrapping up. Uh, it, it's a great time, especially to be a sports fan. I heard some. Uh, I heard some tense in that. Uh in that fantasy comment. Yeah, Sounds we're like not going to talk about how last out. week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Last weekend didn't uh, quite work out for me. When you lose your top two running backs uh, heading into playoffs, um, that, yeah, it, it takes a little shot to the team. So, uh, hey, but uh, I, I was busy playing on championship weekend. Where were you, Tim? <laughs> Watching. Okay, yeah, that's a radio silence there. Okay, that's what I thought. So I'll take my second place and hold my head high. That's fair. That's fair. I uh, I can support that for sure. Um, so as we talk about bowl season, uh, one of the big conversations going on right now is, are there too many bowl games? We have this ramp-up period, it feels like, where there are, I don't know how many, 30 bowl games that go on before you actually get to the meat of the schedule once you get to uh, the New Year's Day bowls and things like that. Are there too many bowl games? Do people actually care all the way through this season? You know, I think people as a whole know. Um, you know, I, I do think the fan base of each school does. Um, you know, I have a lot of friends in, in the area that went to TCU uh, and SMU, and the TCU fans are extremely excited. You know, they didn't make a good bowl, but, you know, they're still excited that they get to see that team one more time. And, you know, they're just as hyped for that game as they are, you know, a regular season game against Texas. Um, and then when you look at a school like SMU who, who doesn't make it, you know, they, they do feel a little bit of pain. Um, so I would say for the fan base, uh, average fan, you know, I, 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 don't, I don't think so. You know, I don't think the average fan is going to tune into a, you know, a, a six and six, a seven and five team that's in a bowl game. But, you know, the way I look at it, it it's more football. It's fun to watch. It, it gives me you know, some good content to pay attention to on a, you know, random weeknight. And um, really, I, I think, you know, I'm a Texas fan. Uh, you know, we're obviously in a big bowl this year against Georgia. But in, in my books, uh, you know, if, if you're not in the college playoffs, um, you know, the bowl game's just a, another game for the school and for the fan base. And um, the stakes aren't even honestly that high in my books. 
TC, you disagree a little bit. Yeah, I, I would have to say uh, I, I'm I'm tired of the Tuesday night six and six Sun Belt team versus the seven and five you know Mid American Conference or whatever. Yeah. I I understand. Yes, it is the kids. They get one more chance to play a game. The fans get to watch it. But um, report just came out this last Saturday was the first kind of a wave of bowls this season. Some of the lowest ratings they've had in a decade. Um, it, there is an oversaturation almost of content around sports this time of year. Again, the NFL is ramping up. NFL is playing on Saturdays now. A little competition there. Um, again, now there's there's NFL games on four nights a week. The NBA season's in full swing. NHL season's in full swing. Some of these bowls have just gotten ridiculous to where uh, there's just too many, frankly. Um, you can't put that much uh, – let me rephrase that. You can't have that many good teams in a college football season. Um, we've expanded it to a point – I know they're sponsors. They want their own bowl game. Um, they want to get people there. But some of these times they're a burden to the school. The schools have to buy so many tickets, and they can't sell out tickets. You can't convince Utah State to go buy tickets for a bowl game in Florida. The fans just don't travel there. If they found a way to keep all the bowls local – where they could actually get the fan bases engaged, maybe that's a different story. But when you have so many bowls spread all across the country, you just don't have the teams that it makes sense to put in there. It gets it gets boring, it gets oversaturated, and I can't even tell you anyone. I know UNT, our local team, played on Saturday. That didn't go too well. But other than that, there's so many of these games, I was like, I have no idea who these teams are, who their players are, what they're doing. Yeah, but I mean, they did add three more bowl games this year, so obviously something's working. Maybe it's maybe it's the viewership, maybe it's not the viewership, but maybe the sponsorship's money there for NCAA, right? I mean, obviously everything they're doing with the bowl games revolves around money, and if they're adding, obviously it's a lucrative business, so something has to be working. No, yeah, you're absolutely right there. I wonder if there's not a necessary ramp-up process that these lesser-known bowls kind of, they serve that purpose, right? That even if... You know, I'm just Joe Schmo, kind of casual football fan, uh, casual sports fan, and I sit at home on a Tuesday night and I flip on the TV and there's a bowl game on. Even if I don't necessarily care about that bowl game, am I subconsciously aware now that there are bowl games going on? And so uh, then I kind of know in the back of my head, like, oh, I should I should keep an eye out for when the semifinals are and for you know when the college football playoff actually kicks off. Is that something that you think happens? Yeah, I think so. I think it does keep you at the bowl season kind of it ramps up to the New Year's Bowls and the, the semifinals, the, you know, eventually the playoff, the championship. Um, and, and it does do a good job with that, of keeping you engaged in college football. I think college football has a little bit of an issue with the drop off after the season. The NFL, you, week 17, you're done. Next week, wildcard week and you roll right through it. College football, even these first bowls are you know two weeks removed usually from the championship weekend. A lot of these teams go well over a month without playing. So um, especially when you try and get you know, almost you know re-energized for the playoff and the stuff right around Christmas, New Year's, and all, um, these bowls do kind of give you a nice little uh, a ramp into that and uh, keep you engaged with it. Yeah, I would agree. No, that, that's definitely the case. Um, you know, I was eating dinner last night, local Mexican restaurant here, and um, you know they had one of the bowl games on, and it got me to pull my phone out and see you know what times the New Year's Eve bowls games work. So I'm going to be out of town, and I was already planning for that. So I, I definitely think that's the case. All right, you're given one opportunity to fix something about the college football bowl season, whether it's uh, adding more teams to the playoff or you know reducing the number of games, making it more selective. Uh, what's your silver bullet fix? 
how are you gonna how are you gonna change bowl season TC? Uh, I get to go first, so I'm gonna steal expand the playoff. Um, <laughs> sorry, Tim. Um, right. I, I think that is the easiest and single thing that they should do. Uh, eight team is fine. Um, I think if you're team number nine and you're complaining, you don't have an argument. Um, people will say, you know, team five now doesn't have an argument because five years ago, just one and two would have made it. But there are too many good teams. When you have a situation, you have five major um, conferences in college football. If a team is clearly the dominant team, goes undefeated for each of those conferences, they're automatically not going to have a chance. Um, that's not even to mention the UCFs of the world. I don't know what UCF has to do to get a chance in the playoff. You win every game for two straight years, right. including beating some Power 5 schools, beating Auburn last year. That's nothing to, you know, that's serious. That, that's a team that deserves a chance. Do I think they'd win it all? No, of course not. I think Alabama would kill them. But they've earned the right to have a shot. An 18 playoff gives you an opportunity to get one from each conference, get one from the lower five, you know, the non-Power 5 conferences, and then your two best other teams. So if everyone's going to be clamoring. There always has to be two SEC teams. That's the way SEC fans are. Um, so you give them that. You have an eight-team playoff. You started a week earlier. It, it, you can get it done at the same time of year. Um, uh, the scheduling, the whole uh, – that takes kids away too much from school, this and that, is kind of a joke. Again, when we talk about bowl season where we have kids flying across the country – in the middle of a weeknight to play a bowl. Let's get an 18 playoff. Let's make that happen. Tim, you were a student athlete. Is one extra game going to be a make or break for some of these guys? It is. You know, you're you're a senior. Uh, a lot of times in this case, you grew up, you know, dreaming to play for the, for the school you're playing for. And, and if you didn't, you know, that school is something you've bled for, you know, the last four years, five years, if you were redshirted. So, you know, I, I do think that game makes, you know, it a little bit more special. Um, it's usually in a fun destination. You get to do one more road trip, you know, with, you know, essentially your, your brothers, they become your brothers over the years. And, you know, it gives them just one more chance to show themselves uh, because, you know, they're not going to have another chance to do that. It's going to be the last time that they, you know, run out of that tunnel with, with the smoke. And besides, you get, you get some cool swag with it too. You know, who, who doesn't want to PS4 or uh, you know thousand dollar gift card to Best Buy, but the the thought on the playoffs um, ex- expanding, I I agree. Um, you know I think it'd be great to even have some wild card play-ins where you have teams playing in, um, and maybe you know the argument to that could be, well, you know that's more risk for injury, it's more you know strain on the body. Well, you know there's a lot of kind of pointless games during the season out of you know non-conference that if you could just pull those back and then kind of replace that game with a playoff, these schools will make more money. I think it would be more lucrative for NCAA. So um, I guess this is one stance where me and TC will agree, and it's expanding college playoffs on um, – Maybe even adding wild cards would make it better. After hearing that, I'm going to change my answer. Four teams is enough. Never mind. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, TC and Tim, never able to agree on anything here when it comes to sports, except for both big fans of the University of Texas. Hook them. Absolutely. Hook them. I went to A&M, so I'm outnumbered here. So I think that's where we will leave things for today. (laughs) (laughs) Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining me on this week's Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Thanks for having us. This was fun. Right. Thank you to TC and to Tim once again for joining me, uh, helping me discuss the college football bowl season. It's always nice to get some other people in the studio, you know, kind of mix things up a little bit, have a little disagreement, a little back and forth. That's certainly always uh, a good time here on the podcast. Coming up next is my conversation with Skylar Richards. This is actually going to be the first of a three-part series with him. He's the director of sports science for FC Dallas. 
After his last uh, appearance on the podcast, he emailed me and he said, man, I have so much great stuff that I want to talk about when it comes to sports science um, and, and what all is going on these days, maybe the history of it in the past. I have all these ideas for great podcasts floating around in my head. And so I said, hey, why don't we uh, just do a three-part series and, and knock some of this out and get some of this great content out there. And so uh, today we're going to look back at the history of sports science. So how did a lot of the uh, the tech that we have now come about? You know, who was pioneering things and how did it all come along? So we're going to look back at the history of tech in sports science and then take a look at where we are now and then maybe glance a little bit towards the future about, hey, here's what's coming down the pipeline that we're excited about. Uh, so that is coming up here on the Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Coming up next, my conversation with Skylar Richards. All right, making his return visit to the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. Our first return visitor to the podcast is Skylar Richards. He's the head athletic trainer and the director of sports science for FC Dallas. Skylar, thanks for coming back on, man. I'm oh, really happy to do it. I uh, had a lot of fun last time. I'm looking forward to diving in some topics this week. Absolutely. So we're going to take a look just at the state of technology when it comes to sports science. So we're going to look back a little bit at the history, kind of talk about where we are now, then maybe cast an eye towards the future. Um, And this is going to be the first part of a three-part series that we're going to do. So look for the next two parts to come out in the next couple of weeks as well, uh, just so you know kind of what's heading down the pipeline. But uh, Skylar, let's start here. Just where did things begin in the history of, of tech when it comes to sports science? You know, who were kind of some of the innovators? How did that kind of come about uh, to get us to where we are today. Yeah, it's been really cool, you know, in, in my timing in life and in the, the career and all that, that everything kind of started right when I was getting in the industry. And so it's been a kind of a fun journey to go parallel with my development. And where, where things really started was with heart rate monitoring. And they were really the first ones to come mass market um, to the general population. And then Polar really was the first guys to get on the on the scene and say, "Hey, let's let's make this from a team standpoint. Let's be the first ones to make a system that's focused on getting team metrics that really streamlines that whole process of getting 30 people to one device and really getting into that. And so much so that they were the forefront of, of everything when when I got to my grad school was that I did my master's in exercise physiology with a focus in exercise cardiology because that data was out there. And really it was, it's been a fun transition, like I said, mainly because it was like framing a lot of our thought processes as we went because of the technology that was available. Because we were able to measure and monitor players for the first time in a whole staff view, it's like, man, all these things we can do, we can see the overload of the players, we can, you know, think about you know, preventing injuries or optimizing performance and all these things. And we were doing it with heart rate because that's what was available at the time. So it took us a couple of years to realize, oh, there might be other ways to do this or other ways to look at those same methodologies uh, and then apply them to different metrics. But because we were so focused on heart rate was it. And that was really the start of everything. What kind of made heart rate the uh, the first thing that they decided to measure? Was there something that was the impetus for that, uh, an event, or what? What were they trying to uh, to get to the heart of? Yeah, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> with with heart rate. So yeah, it was it was because of the availability of three lead EKGs, and um, you know they had kind of come out with some technology to streamline that on the medical side of things, to where they could do that uh, exercise testing and stress testing, things like that, in a more functional way. 
um, within the medical world. And that's where a lot of this technology comes from, right? When it's vetted out, when it's streamlined for, for medicine and somebody has a great idea to say, oh, that's a good form factor finally. Let's take that to the mass market or let's take that to sports and, and really do this thing and make some money off of it. So um, really it came from that, that whole area. And, and when someone, a cardiologist, realized that, all right, I don't need 12 leads on an EKG, I can do it with three and then package it in this better form factor. That was really the big hurdle that was jumped and made this thing realistic to do. And then again, Polar jumped in and said, all right, we're going to mass market this thing and really streamline it. So I'm, I'm thinking about this and, and, and it kind of, there, there's almost a parallel between you starting your career just right as a lot of this was taking off and us kind of being young people that uh, grew up right alongside the internet kind of becoming a big thing. And so uh, in the same way that we've taken and really harnessed the internet for a lot of different uses um, and our generation's really been big and innovating in that space, it seems like uh, you guys starting when you did in your career uh, and kind of getting to, to work through that in grad school, have been able to grow up alongside this technology and really help harness it and, and take it and use it for its best uses. That's exactly right. And, and that's why it's been so fun to, to grow with it and, and to see it grow in parallel. But at the same time, though, it's funny because then we start to see these same kind of mistakes and patterns. And we were making mistakes as an industry that we didn't know. And that's kind of fun to look back and say, oh, that's where, where you know, we had a bad idea or that's where we repeated our mistakes. And, and sort of that same way where we were making jumps to conclusions that we didn't realize we were doing early on, you know. For example, with the heart rate stuff, we, um, we were trying to, at first, really trying to figure out, can we predict injuries with this or, or predict um, stop teams from having so many hamstring strains, right, because of cardiovascular load. Well, that's really difficult because if you think about it, your heart rate is a systemic measure. And what that means is you can increase your heart rate by pumping your fist or by running using all your muscles, right? So you can really generate heart rate a lot of different ways. So to infer locational stress, hamstring stress, for example, which is our number one injury in soccer, um, from heart rate is kind of a too big of a jump and in inference there because you don't know what else was contributing to that heart rate increase over time. So, um, you know, we realized that down the road and kind of stopped making jumps and really started using heart rate for what it's meant to do, cardiovascular development, right? Um, but again, we, we did that kind of time over time again as each new technology came out. So what was the progression after heart rate? You know, how did things move forward from there and how did you, uh, how did the industry get smarter after that point? Yeah, so uh, the, the big team-based system that came after that was GPS and, and that's still really popular now. But again, it's, it's been fun to see each kind of iteration that came out after that. So once, um, you know, GPS, and this actually has a big government influence where, you know, during, while I was in grad school, the government kind of, unleashed and unlocked the ability for companies to use GPS at a higher resolution and a higher granularity. And that's when the, the, the companies like Garmin came on the market right at that time. And uh, they started making um, wrist wearables uh, that you could go out for a jog and know exactly how far you ran. And you know, at that time they were huge. They went up halfway up your arm. And so um, th that was all because the government allowed technology companies to start doing that and tracking people at a high level. 
And so as that developed and that grew and grew and, and the units got smaller, um, and then companies came on the market probably about five, six years after that and said, okay, again, let's do this at a team level. Let's put a unit on everybody's back and be able to track uh, their speed, their distance covered, the decelerations, all these things um, as they're running uh, across the field. So what year, what years are we talking about? Like uh, along like the timeline of this? Yeah. So 2006 is when I was in grad school. And so that was mm-hmm. when really polar again was in their heyday and getting, getting going and, and they've continued on since, but then GPS really came on the market probably 2008, 2009, um, in terms of getting out into the public and, um, where risk wearables were growing up between 2006 and 2008. And then when 2000. 10 hit, it was getting really popular in terms of the soccer industry and mm-hmm. across the um, international scene. Cool. Sorry, I, I, I didn't mean to interrupt. I just wanted to get a little bit of clarification just on the uh, on the uh, the time frame we were talking there. So, uh, so they started putting GPS monitors on the backs of every player. Um, and, and what kind of data were you collecting there? Uh, you kind of mentioned some of it, but how did you begin collecting that data? And how did you uh, how did the industry start to assign meaning to some of the data that you were receiving? Yeah. There? So it all kind of started from an initial um, research that was done over in Europe and I believe in Australia first, where they were just looking at how many um, total? How much total distance somebody was covering during a soccer game? And you know, and somebody it started by somebody kind of looking at video and just um, kind of knowing how long the sideline was and just tracking the video the whole time and just watching one person and averaging that out. Well, once that that data came out, we're like, well, I wonder how much my team does it and how much uh, ground my midfielders cover. And all those things. So th- then we started looking at a high level. And, you know, there's always been this, again, this jump to, to conclusions that we've um, done in the industry where we were mixing together uh, perpor- performance capacity with tactical, right? So I, I think, you know, originally it was more of a tactical concept to where, all right, if my midfielders aren't covering as much ground as Real Madrid, right, and I'm trying to play the same style as them, well, we have to fix that, right? And that's a pretty decent measuring stick, um, especially if you're playing in a box-to-box style or something where you really want your guys to be moving. Mm-hmm. So that's really good. But the, the jump and the error, again, that we made as an industry, the same one that we kind of made with, with heart rate stuff, is, is this jump to conclusion that just because you didn't perform something, just because you didn't cover that much ground, doesn't mean you physically couldn't, right? And that was kind of the idea for a long time, that you didn't have the ability to. No, maybe tactically, you know, the game didn't demand it of you that game, you know? Or maybe you just didn't choose to, you know? Because a lot of performance is choice. Um, you weren't up to it that day. You weren't in the right mindset. You weren't switched on, however you want to say it. So realizing that and realizing there's a, now there's a difference between physiologic measurements versus performance measurements versus tactical measurements. And that's really my three domains that I think we're living in now uh, in, ter- in terms of this current state of sports science. Yeah, because there can be a player like... Um like an Andre Pirlo or something like that, a guy that his game wasn't necessarily built around covering a lot of space. It was more just knowing the right place to be and getting there ahead of other people. Maybe not necessarily quicker or covering a ton of ground, but just in his mind knowing exactly where he needed to be in the game. And so you guys kind of 
as, as you progressed with this technology, got smarter just about understanding why certain players move the way they do. That's exactly right. And so, you know, and there's always the example, too, of especially if Pirlo's a great um, kind of person to fit in this niche is where, you know, he, do, he covers a third of the ground that everybody else in that position covers, but you win 5-0. So what are you really debating here? You, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you got the result. So, you know, I, and I think, too, it, it gets even more gray when you take that and you apply it to the training set, setting, right? Because now you are talking about volume um, acclimatization, right, to where you're trying to get their bodies ready to, uh, for that volume if they need it in the game. So now you say, okay, maybe you didn't need that volume um, in the small side of the game we played today at, at practice. But... I want you to be able to handle that volume or in a condition your body to be able to handle that volume if you need it for the game, right? So now let's go on the side and let's do some extra distance. Uh, let's do some extra runs to try to build that volume up. And that now is a physiologic uh, application. It's, it's a um, kind of preventative way. And that does hold water, right? Um, so that's a good way in practice that these things is not a, too much of a jump to the conclusion, but accurately applied and so now you're seeing GPS used more in that way and uh, the rise of the tactical sensors out there that are camera based that are really mm -hmm. comparing you to the game so they're seeing the, the opponents as well the problem with GPS is that you're only getting metrics off the, the players you have um, wear GPS on the field and so you can't compare it to what the defense is doing, right? Um, and tactically what the situations are and, and the verses and, and the combinations of players on the field and formations and things like that. So the rise of camera-based systems is, is really exciting as we get into the, our future talk here of something that is going to take sports science to the next level uh, in tactics and in performance because it'll measure both sides. That's interesting. So casting an eye forward, these panoramic ca panoramic cameras um, that you're using, what all what all can they measure? You kind of dipped into it a little bit, but can they measure, uh, you know, how fast the player runs, and then you know for what distance, and then kind of assemble some some usable statistics from that? Yeah. So currently, what's what's out there is really just the the technology to get a seamed panoramic view is is really what's out there and available to the public right now and that's probably the biggest jump we've made so far in this technology and what i mean is having two or three cameras because the the pitch is very wide um so one that that looks to the opponent's goal one that looks to our goal and the one that looks at midfield and then the ability to stitch those images together so it's one seamless camera like you said panoramic uh, and then watch that in real time has just really become uh, available for everybody. So we're just getting into like companies now. There's lots of companies that take that video and they have some poor guy sitting in the back room like measuring time of possession and pass from A to B to C, you know, and, and manually doing all those statistics. So that's right now the level of um, stats that we're able to get from this technology. What the future is going to hold, though, is where that's automated. Where the camera can really differentiate um, each player on the field. And then once you know that player and where he's at, you can start to glean all the same stuff that we're talking about GPS-wise. If you know where he is, you know how big the, the field is, then you know um, how far he's traveled. You know, you know how many times he uh, decelerated. You know his change of directions. 
So now you can glean all that same sort of stuff, but you also know what the three guys that he's paired up with on the other team are doing in terms of covering ground, right? So did he cover more ground than they did? Did he work a little more harder than they did? So now we're going to get some tactical performance data kind of mixed together that, that has a lot more relevance, that can glean a lot more actionable insights to us as we make decisions for training and preparing our guys for the next game. Yeah, and that, that provides that context, like what you're talking about, uh, that, that maybe was just lacking in pure GPS or heart rate numbers, like you were saying earlier, just that the big mistake was jumping to assign a meaning to it before you really knew. But if from the video, eventually down the road, you're able to have all of those measurables, that provides the necessary context to maybe judge a player's performance a little bit more acutely than you were able to do before. That's exactly right. And, and the fun part now is that now that we've gone kind of the whole spectrum of past present and future, tie it back in because what's lacking now and, and even was a hurdle with GPS that we found a bit, but not as much, but we're going to find it even more so in the video stuff is that these systems are out there, but they didn't come from a science background. They didn't come from a medical background like we said heart rate did, right? Um, mm -hmm. Like like in GPS came from the government, from military. So those things were already validated at a high level for a different reason. Well, uh, this camera-based stuff really hasn't done that, right? So now companies are having to reinvent that wheel from the ground up and, and do this validation themselves, where before it was kind of sitting there and just needed to be utilized in a different way. So it's a really interesting change in the dynamic over how this technology is being developed specifically for sport instead of just applied for sport. That's interesting. And, and in the past, I know in the, in the previous time that you've come on the podcast, we talked a little bit about uh, using uh, maybe some thermo technology where you, you kind of measured uh, different aspects of players. I'm curious just how that has come about and, and the advancements in that area. Yeah, so that's really exciting to where, where I was talking about again, if the, moving the future forward. If now we have this video technology that's for tactical, right? Mm -hmm. um, and does a little bit of performance, but then, you know, m maybe we do something else, speed, or we do jump height or something for, that's strictly performance. But then this thermography you're talking about is specifically for physiology. And now breaking those, those three areas apart, like I said, becomes so important because we're not getting lost in the gray, we're getting fine-tuned. And for me, the definition of a physiology science or a physiology technology is one that doesn't depend on the, on the person's choice um, and it's mm -hmm. kind of non-optional. I'm just measuring how your body's reacting to something, right? So the difference is with the thermography, for example, I'm taking a picture of your skin and I'm seeing where you're having inflammatory reactions on your body. And so I know if I, if I take pictures after a day after a game of my starters, I know who's breaking down and who's not. That saves me a whole lot of time. And then on those bodies, I know where they're breaking down and where they're not. So now I know where to treat. Right, right. So for me, I'm doing prevention in an individualized way. I'm doing it in an efficient way. Because the problem with doing prevention is, in theory, you should be doing it on everybody all the time. Mm -hmm. You know? Uh, and especially, we don't want to wait for injured bodies, but that's kind of nice when they do get injured in that we know who to work on. That choice is made right. for us, but we don't want, want that to happen. This kind of mediates both sides of it. And so there are a lot of other physiology technologies coming out that are focused in that realm, looking at heart rate variability and things like that, where we're just seeing how your body's reacting to it. 
the, the, the highlights here are that we don't know what you did to make your body angry or fatigued, right? We don't know mm -hmm. how you did at it, right? And from this angle, uh, it doesn't really matter. We know that your body needs repaired somehow or needs help in some way, and we're identifying the way and the how. You're right, and you're kind of you're also cutting out uh, using that. You're cutting out the uh, the honesty or dishonesty of the player, right? Like because oftentimes um, I, I would imagine players will maybe not necessarily be 100% upfront with you about something because they want to get back on the field. They want to make sure that they keep their place on the team and that sort of thing. Uh, and so sometimes a guy maybe have you know just a little bit of a hurt somewhere uh, but now you're able to recognize that without having to maybe ask him or, or get that that forthcoming uh, honesty from him that's exactly right and, and and once we find too is that there's a difference in pain tolerance so even some of our guys some of the the guys i like to work with the best are the ones that uh, are quote-unquote tough right but they don't sense these things happening to their body right they've just conditioned their their mentalities to you know always push through and that's got them to the stage that they are now but sometimes then especially as their bodies get older they don't realize these things are happening and so it's not like they're being dishonest or holding back which still happens in some cases but a lot of times these guys just don't realize it and so when I can make them realize it or then you know identify an area and then start to treat treat it a lot of times we'll say, oh, yeah, I am sore there. Or, oh, man, I didn't realize that was there. For sure. And so that's a really cool moment for us to say and, you know, for me to look at the guy and go, yeah, no problem. But we need to keep doing this all year long so that these things don't blow up into something that does make you unavailable. Right, right. So what are some of the companies? Uh, you mentioned Polar earlier as being one of the, the companies that was uh, in the forefront of, uh, of a lot of this tech. What are some of the companies that are innovating nowadays that, uh, that you're using that you're excited about? Yeah, I think Stat Sports has done a great job on the GPS side in terms of getting into to soccer. I think them and Catapult are probably the top two names in GPS um, in the world right now. Um, and Stat Sports is doing a lot of great stuff on the video um, analysis side, like I was talking about, of player tracking that way. So that's a really exciting company that I'm keeping up with. Another one that, um, that I'm really looking at is, is, again, the thermography. It's a company called Thermohuman, and they've really streamlined the way that things are analyzed um, and, and that making that thermography data really important for us. And then another one that's really interesting to me is wearable EMG. So where you're wearing this, this kit, and it's telling you which muscles exactly are using and how much you're using them. And again, mm -hmm. that's a performance metric because you have to choose to use your muscles. But I think that's really exciting technology that needs to be kind of um, improved and, and developed. But I think long term, especially for um, endurance athletes and things like that, can really help people identify which muscles I'm using and are those the muscles that I should be using. So I'm really excited about, about all three of those. And then probably the biggest area that we're seeing grow, which is kind of a metaphor for the industry, is data aggregation. And so now we have all these technologies and all these different things that we're doing. Um, it's like, how do we put all that data together and make it meaningful? Because it's easy to get lost in that stuff. So that's right. a whole other area. And companies like Connect, uh, Conduct, Coach Me Plus, and Kitman Labs are doing a great job about doing that in a way that helps me not get lost in Excel hell all day and in, <laughs> in a way that makes the UI UX really um, advantageous for my players and for my coaches so they get bought in as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, that's huge. That is absolutely huge. Uh, so let's uh, let's wrap up that topic there and give people a little bit of a preview of what we're going to talk about next time. I know that uh, you maybe wanted to hit on a hot button issue, uh, something along the lines of data rights. Uh, so give us a little bit of preview. Uh, why is this such a hot button issue, and why should people tune in for the next uh, the next episode? Yeah, so it, it, it's really. Um a, a crazy topic that's come up and it comes again back from this history and that's why it's we started this way it's so important to know that history because for heart rate for example is a medical um a medical device right and a lot of these are fda approved devices and they wanted that for validity sake but that also means that that data then can be hipaa protected and that's that patient's data and so now every day these athletes are getting medical data taken from them and it's not always given back to them or it's property of the team because the team's taking that data so you know when those data points affect how the player uh, is looked at viewed their contracts and then it's medical data being used now we're getting into some wicked areas and i think next week i'm looking forward to diving into that that's going to be uh, that's going to be a really good conversation. I'm uh, I'm pretty excited about that. Uh, well, Skyler, we will uh, do it again soon, and uh, everyone be on the lookout for that episode next week. Um, and uh, we're going to be excited about releasing that one as well. Skyler, thank you for joining the podcast again, man. I oh, appreciate it. Look forward to next week. All right, thanks again to Skylar Richards for joining the podcast. Again, that's the first of a three-part series we're going to do on sports science, so look out for those next two parts coming up shortly on the Market Scale Sports and Entertainment Podcast. All right, coming up next, uh, I kind of previewed this a little bit earlier. But I had a conversation earlier in the week with a guy named Aaron Patton. And Aaron, just a fascinating guy. I really loved getting to talk to him. But, uh, you know, if, if you've listened to this show at all, um, you know that our feature interview portions of the show will last about 15 minutes each. And normally we have two in a show. So uh, I sit down to do uh, what I think is going to be a 15-minute interview with Aaron. Um, and, you know, he was, the, he was the global director for the Jordan brand when Nike first launched. Uh, the Jordan brand is kind of like a satellite to what they are already doing there at Nike. And, um, and so he was the global director and was brought on and worked uh, alongside Michael Jordan in the launch of this brand and uh, was an integral part of that process of creating one of the most recognizable and successful brands uh, in sportswear today. So, you know, I thought, okay, we'll spend a couple minutes talking about that. We'll talk about what he's doing now. He's got a platform called Amplify Sports uh, that's really operating in the youth sports realm uh, that I think is really interesting that we also dive into. Uh, but we spent what was supposed to be a 15-minute interview. We spent the first 20 minutes uh, talking about just that experience of working with Michael Jordan and hearing stories about traveling the world with Michael Jordan and going to Tokyo and to... You know, the first time he met Michael Jordan in Michael Jordan's trailer uh, on the shoot of a commercial and all of that sort of thing. And those stories were just so fascinating to me that how do you how do you not talk about that? And so we spent so much time talking about that. And then when we finally got around to talking about Amplify Sports, we spent another 20 minutes talking about uh, the advancements in that area and what he's doing now and how he's hoping to mold the future of young athletes. And we spent so much time talking about this that it ended up being a 40-minute conversation. And I thought, you know what, this is uh, deserving of its own episode in and of itself. And so what you're going to hear next is just a little teaser of what's going to come out on December 27th. That's when we're going to release the full interview with Aaron Patton. Uh, So if you want to hear that, that's going to be a bonus episode, bonus content. So please make sure you go and subscribe on iTunes. Subscribe 
or I guess it's follow the podcast on Spotify uh, or just bookmark the sports and entertainment page on market scale. Make sure you come back and check it on December 27th. It's going to be an awesome conversation. It's going to be something that you're going to want to hear, uh, hearing about that experience of working with Michael Jordan and now what he's doing uh, with Amplify Sports. So that's Aaron Patton. So coming up next is just a little preview, just a little 90 second teaser of what you can expect to hear more of when you listen to the podcast on December 27th. And so um, I, I met Michael uh, in 96 um, on the set of a commercial. And this, you know, it may sound like a long time ago, but uh, if you were like most sneakerheads about a week ago, um, you know, trying to get the Concord, um, uh, you remember that was the year that it originally released. And so we were um, in an armory on the south side of Chicago. And uh, so I, you know, that was literally maybe four months into the job. And so my, uh, my role at that point, obviously, was to generate awareness and, and publicity for, uh, you know, the upcoming release for, for that product and, and the commercial. And so I arrived there and, and, um, and so I'm looking around and, and uh, they said he's in the trailer. And uh, so I said, OK, uh, who's going to introduce me? <laughs> you know, Nike's that kind of place where when you've been there, it's just like he's in the trailer, you know. But I'm like, that's like his airness. Uh, where, you know, I don't I need a bodyguard or, you know, where, where's the police escort? But um, so anyway, I, you know, went in and, um, you know, Michael's in the trailer and he's talking to his uh, the stylist and uh, she's uh, an older woman. And uh, they're just laughing and joking. And I'm sitting at the front, not wanting to. Um, uh, sort of disrupt the conversation. And so, you know, after, you know, about a minute or two and, you know, he didn't acknowledge me. And, you know, so I, <clears throat> you know, kind of cleared my throat and uh, still didn't work. And, you know, I, I wanted to sort of introduce myself, but uh, it might have come out like it was the other Michael I was uh, saying hello to, like, hi, Michael. He was in Jackson. And so anyway, he looked up right away and said, uh, uh, hey, EP, you're here for the uh, interviews and had entertainment tonight and a bunch of folks there doing one-on-ones and grabbing B-roll. And so, um, you know, really from from that from that moment, um, you know, we, we connected on a level, I, I believe, that was um, very much um, sort of intrinsic to the value that uh, Michael represented to uh, to Nike and, and to the uh, not just the product creation process, but the overall uh, sort of making of what eventually would become Brand Jordan and and really having a, a very keen understanding of the business and the importance of uh, the little things that you know athletes these days look at as you know sort of uh, an inconvenience. All right, like I said, just a little taste, just a tease of what you can get uh, when the full episode drops on December 27th. So make sure you're subscribed for that either on iTunes or Spotify or Google Podcasts or you have our website booked, uh, bookmarked. That would be huge as well. So any one of those ways, just make sure that you're going to get that full episode when it drops on December 27th. It's my full conversation with Aaron Patton, the former global director of the Jordan brand for Nike. That is going to do it for today's episode. Thank you to Tim and TC for joining me earlier on for the intro, talking a little bit of bowl action in the college football world. Thank you to Skylar Richards. Make sure you tune in for his next episode as well as we uh, knocked out the first of a three-part series today on sports science. Uh, And thank you to Aaron Patton. And uh, make sure you get that full interview when it comes out December 27th. Thank you again for listening, uh, good listeners. I hope you have a great holiday season with your loved ones, your friends, whoever you spend uh, this time with. I hope you have an enjoyable time. And uh, we will be back next week with another episode. But until then, I've been your host, Tyler Kerr. Thanks for listening.